This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast earlier this year in March. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is the writer Isabel Allende. She describes herself as a novelist, a feminist, and a philanthropist. She's one of the most widely read authors in the world, having sold more than 75 million books. Chilean-born in Peru, Allende won worldwide acclaim in 1982 with the publication of her first novel, The House of the Spirits, which began as a letter to her dying grandfather. Since then, she's authored more than 25 best-selling and critically acclaimed books, including The Daughter of Fortune, Island Beneath the Sea, Paola, The Japanese Lover, Long Petal of the Sea, The Soul of a Woman, and her latest novel, Violetta. In 2014, President Barack Obama awarded Allende the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor. In 2018, she received the Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters from the National Book Foundation. The Isabel Allende Foundation invests in the power of women and girls to secure reproductive rights, economic independence, and freedom from violence. I reached Isabel Allende last week at her home in California. Here's the first part of my conversation with Isabel Allende. Well, your latest book begins and ends with uh, with the pandemic. You know, the Spanish flu up to the current pandemic was, was I, I guess, very timely. Was, was that something you set out to do? No. I, I start all my books on January 8th, and I started Violeta on January 8th, 2020, when the pandemic was not here yet. And I had already written like a chapter or two when the pandemic hit, and then I realized that my character is born in one pandemic. It would be only natural to end it, to end it in the, in, during the COVID, to bookends for 100 years of history. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Uh, you, uh, I'm very interested to learn this. You, you begin your books on January 8th. Why, why do you do that? Discipline and uh-huh. superstition. Yeah. It's a good day to start. <laughs> I have started all my books on, on, on that day, <laughs> and my first book was very lucky, and I thought, well, maybe the second one will be lucky if I started on the same day, and I did so. But in time, it became a matter of discipline because my life got really complicated, and, uh, and now having a day to start allows me to clear my calendar, to be prepared. It's good. Well, not that it matters, but that's my birthday. So that, uh, well, oh, that's, that's a nice... Happy uh, birthday, then. <laughs> I'll, uh, now, every day on my birthday, I'll be thinking, well, please, Isabel Yende is me. starting her new yeah. book. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful connection. Um, so, so you mentioned uh, House of the Spirits. Uh, lucky, obviously, for you, it opened doors, I imagine. What, uh, what did that do for you? It changed my life. I had no life to speak of. I was working, administering a school, living as an immigrant in Venezuela, as a political refugee in Venezuela. My marriage was collapsing. My children were going to university, so I felt very empty. And then I started writing this thing that didn't have a shape and ended up being my first novel, and by a stroke of luck, it became very successful in Europe from the very beginning. And that meant that I could eventually quit my day job and become a writer. So it changed everything for me. You were in Venezuela at the time, were you? Yes. Yeah, and then eventually came to the United States. Um, this was, uh, you know, you could call it exile, right? Uh, the, the political situation shifted suddenly, and... Uh, out of the country you were. I wonder what your thoughts are on, and now, you know, it's many years later, having lived in Venezuela and the United States, 
Well, uh, I think that uh, without the military coup in 1973 that really changed uh, the direction my life was going, uh, I would still be a journalist in Chile, probably a retired one and a happy one. But um, living in, in Venezuela all those years, I, I think I was sick with nostalgia, and I invented in my mind a country that was no longer there, because when, by the time I could return to Chile, and the dictatorship lasted 17 years, so that was a long time, um, everything had changed, and I had changed too. So the country that I remember is not there anymore. Yeah. By the way, what would you think of the latest elections in Chile? Well, I'm delighted. I think it's a, it's a scary time because everything is shifting really fast. The idea is to create a new constitution, and uh, they are revising everything. Do we want a, what kind of country do we want? A federal country? What, what kind of country? Uh, now today, I think they are discussing the role of the armed forces. Do we want to have an army or not? So all this is um, really interesting, and the new president is young, um, very moderate. Um, he's, he represents the left of the country, and in Chile, the president lasts four years and cannot be reelected immediately. He can be reelected only once, but they have to skip, skip four years. And that means that the country has gone like a pendulum from the right to the left, from the left to the right. And, and nothing gets done. So I don't know how much this young man will be able to do in the time that he has with all the changes that they are proposing. And he doesn't have the majority in Congress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder what um, it's happened since, right? The, the coup happened and, and off you went. What do you think that's... What do you think that's done to you, uh, uh, being an immigrant and uh, living in a foreign country, for example, um, you know, writing in Spanish but uh, speaking in English, for example? Well, my first novel I wrote in Venezuela, three of my books in Venezuela, where we speak Spanish. And um, in a way, I think that the, the impulse to write came from being uprooted trying to find roots in in the stories that I had heard as a child, the stories I had left, the people I had left behind. It was an exercise in nostalgia, I would say. And um, in a way, also, being away from my country has given me a, a, a more, a sort of perspective of the world. I have traveled extensively because of my books, and before, because I was the daughter of diplomats. So I have also experienced the, the role of a refugee and of an immigrant, which are different. And, um, and I think that gives me a lot of material for my writing. Mm-hmm. Refugee and immigrant are different. Uh, you know, um, tell me about that, what you've experienced both. Well, um, a refugee is someone who's running away from, for, for his or her life, uh, usually cannot choose where they go. They just need to get out. They are in despair. Um, usually, you know that most refugees are women and children, and they are received with hostility everywhere. And it's, it's very, very hard. Um, according to statistics, a refugee spends between 17 and 25 years away from the country of origin. And when they return, if they return, 
usually they can't bring with them their families because the children have grown up in another place and they don't feel any any connection to the old country mm. and when they return they don't have a place there either because everything has changed and they are older an immigrant is a different situation because usually they are young and they go to another place with the idea of staying planting roots uh, prosper um, they have a vision for the future. They are not tied to the past. So um, the, 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 the emotional situation of an immigrant is very different from that of a refugee. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the people are being displaced, uh, refugees, very poignant now with, with the situation in Ukraine, seeing these pictures once again of people fleeing. Yeah. Uh, must be very yeah. poignant. Every time there is war, there is occupation, violence, or, or uh, poverty, extreme poverty, which is the case in most of Central America, people have to get out for their lives. Mm-hmm. You've said that, uh, first of all, you didn't believe that a, you know, a coup could take root in, in Chile, and I, I, I did it surprise you it lasted 17 years. Yes, I don't think anybody except the military maybe thought that it could last so long, uh, because we did, Chile didn't have a tradition in military coups or... or or caudillos, the chieftains that, that um, were a curse in the rest of Latin America. So uh, we, we did not think, we didn't know anything of how, it, it, of how repression worked and how, how it would change the country. And they, um, the government of Pinochet established a neoliberal economic system that was extreme, extreme neoliberalism that was possible because the workforce was repressed. So there was ample freedom and opportunities for for capital and for empresarios and for business and uh, and also very cheap labor because uh, there were no political parties or nobody representing the labor force. So that was in a way, a very artificial way of implanting an economic system that eventually collapsed. But, um, but it changed the country completely. Hmm. So now, when we, with this new constitution, the idea is to change the constitution that was imposed by the dictatorship. Uh, that, that constitution was amended several times during the democratic governments that followed the dictatorship. But, if, but basically, it remained... Uh, the same in which the, the 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 state has very little input and everything is in private hands. Mm-hmm. So that created extreme wealth in a few people, a very small percentage of the population, a huge middle class living on credit, and and poverty that is hidden. So so some ex- extreme problems that need to be dealt with by the current government, as, as you said. Yeah. So, so after those 17 years, I guess it could have been that you could go back, but at, at extreme change, you know, Chile is a different place. Um, well, I could have gone back, mm-hmm. uh, but I was married to an American, and I was trying to sponsor my children to bring them here. So the idea of returning to Chile, I would have had, I would have had to return alone, not mm-hmm. with my children. They were brought up in Venezuela. So you're, uh, you're in the United States, you obviously. Um, I don't know, what are your thoughts still today about the, the role of the U.S. government in, in that coup and others in South America? Well, the CIA was, was involved. 
in, um, in destroying all the leftist movements in the whole of Latin America. And they, for example, in Central America, they, um, they supported brutal, corrupt governments um, that it was, this was during the time of the Cold War. But in Central America, in 1980, there were genocides that were uh, either ignored or supported by the United States government. So now, when people have collapsed governments that don't work at all, totally dysfunctional, and people run away and they come to ask for asylum at the border, well, this is a consequence of, of historical events. Hmm. I want to uh, turn to talking about uh, Violetta, the latest book. Um, you have said that uh, inspiration for the book was uh, came about with your mother's death a couple of two or three years ago. Uh, is there anything of your mother in Violetta? Of course, Violetta's her own woman, but uh, is there anything of your mother in, in that character? Well, like Violetta, my mother was born in 1920 from an upper class in a country that looks very much like Chile, although the country's never mentioned the name of the country. And um, she, um, she comes from a Catholic, authoritarian, male chauvinistic, conservative family. And she's brought to be a young lady who would be one day somebody's mother and wife. But Violeta escapes that role. And, um, and my mother did also. She, mar- she married the wrong man, my father, and was able to annul that marriage and became a single woman with three kids. And then she remarried. But um, with, 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 with another, with, my, my father was a diplomat, and then she married another diplomat. But... The, 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 but unlike like Violeta, my mother was beautiful, smart, with a sense of irony, um, talented in many ways. She also had a sort of financial vision. You know, she could she could have made money if she had had any money of her own to invest. But nobody paid any attention to what she had to suggest. She was very powerless in a way, and uh, that's a big difference between Violeta and my mother. Mm-hmm. You, uh, I've read that you have uh, something like twenty-four thousand letters, you, you know, from your mother uh, in in boxes. Well, they are not only from my mother; they yeah. are my my mother's and copy of my letters. Ah, yes. So, so, so because because yeah. I would keep copy of my letter, my daily letters to her, and then at the end of the year she would give me back. Uh, so I kept her letters and my letters, and uh, and they are in boxes year by year. Very impressive. Yeah, that's that's a treasure. That's really a treasure. You, <laughs> well, I yeah. don't know if that's a treasure for anybody else except me. <laughs> well, certainly for you, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you go back and reread any of those? No, except uh-huh. when I have written memoirs, then uh, then I go back to the boxes and see what, when and how things really happened. Because the letter records the emotion of the moment, not only the events, but how we felt about it. Yeah. Oh, that uh, that is a wonderful thing. Um, do you carry that on to the next uh, generation? Is there, is there, I mean, we're in a different no, time now, no, right? No, no, I think that my, my son will burn the whole thing. <laughs> Why would he give that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope he keeps them. That's a, That'd be a treasure. <laughs> You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and uh, my conversation with Isabel Allende, uh, one of the most widely read authors in the world. 
Um, she describes herself as a novelist, a feminist, and a philanthropist. Her latest book, a novel, is called Violetta. And we'll have more with Isabel Allende following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest uh, today is the writer Isabel Allende. Uh, her books include uh, The House of the Spirits, Daughter of Fortune, Island Beneath the Sea, Paula, The Japanese Lover, A Long Petal of the Sea, The Soul of a Woman, and her latest is a novel. It's called Violetta. And uh, here is uh, the second part of my conversation. I reached Isabel Allende last week at her home in California. I want to talk about your, your feminism. You're known as a feminist a long time. You you talked a little bit about your mother and how... Uh, you know, how she was, uh, the system, you know, she was controlled. It left her, left her husband, uh, went back home, and, and now her, her father, I guess your grandfather, took over the finances, that sort of thing. Uh, is uh, a teenager, is that when you became a feminist? I think that I was born one. I was very young, I mean, in six years old, when I was expelled from the German nuns where I was in kindergarten because I was already rebellious. <laughs> so I, I did rebel against authority in general, male authority in particular, and I saw my mother very vulnerable. My, I wouldn't say a victim, because a victim is someone that cannot escape the situation, and she could have, but she was very vulnerable and, and powerless in every way, and I didn't want to be like her. So, of course, I didn't know the word feminism, but I was already very rebellious. And I must have been in my, I don't know, 14 years old, 13, when I discovered that, that there was something called feminism. And by age 17, when I started reading feminist books from, from Europe and the United States, I realized I wasn't a lunatic, that there was a movement out there, millions of women thinking what I was thinking. So you uh, co-founded a feminist magazine, Paula, right? Um, yeah, I, I work there. Yes. Uh, you, um, you, I quote you. You say you could channel. You found you could channel your anger into action. Wrote a series of satirical columns on the patriarchy called "Civilize Your Troglodyte." That's. <laughs> well, that was one of the columns, yeah, but I did a lot of reporting. Yeah. Not, not only me. I mean, the, the we were three, three women there, uh, and we reported about all those things that had been kept hidden. I mean, and nobody talked about about abortion, divorce, rape, incest, uh, contraception, you name it. All those things that, that were talked about in gossiping or, or, or rumors, but nobody ever uh, published anything about it. Hmm. You've talked about how, uh, I saw an interviewer, you're talking about the, your work at the magazine, and you you know, did reporting, serious reporting, etc. But you, you said you found that uh, humor could be, a, I guess, a weapon, a way to... Way to it is a weapon, yeah. Tom. Mm-hmm. It yes. is. You know that. I mean, when you can make fun of something, that, that can really be... Um, first of all, people listen because they don't feel any aggression in humor, usually. And I would make fun of men, and they loved it. They loved it. Okay. Yeah, yeah they would can... say I have a friend who's just like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or with a friend. <laughs> they recognize at least the friend, right? Maybe if not themselves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what uh, What do you think about feminism today? You know, sort of uh, the, the the Me Too movement and where we are today. Well, there's a new wave of young women who are out in the streets pushing uh, change. Uh, for for a long time, I felt that feminism had uh, somehow frozen in time. 
And, uh, and now, uh, I see when women, especially now that women in the United States feel that their rights are threatened, the right to, for abortion, for example, now they, they, we will see a reaction to that, and they are reacting already. And um, the, this new energy was necessary. You know, the final goal of feminism is to replace the patriarchy, and that will take a long time, and we need a critical number of women engaged in this for that to happen. And I think that this new wave of young women can make that possible. You think it is possible with the new wave? Yes, yeah. not, not, not mm-hmm. right now. I won't see it, but it is going to happen. Yeah. I was, uh, I was tickled to, to read in, in, in an interview I was reading. You said for years you wanted to write a romance novel. Um, I am not good at you, it. You, I'm yeah. terrible. <laughs> so, so you were th- a, a kind of a regular romance novel uh, uh, that we'd, we would find. Why, why, were, why aren't you good at it? Well, uh, the whole thing started because when I, we were working in this magazine in Chile, we had to compete with a magazine that came from Miami. And that, the, the, the whole, I mean, the, the, the thing about that magazine was that it had in every issue a short story by a, a romance writer in Spain called Corinne Tellado. And it was more or less always the same story, very romantic. That you, you know the typical uh, green-eyed, big-breasted virgin that meets CEO in a, para, in, in a tropical island. and uh, Well, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I read a few of those, and I said, well, I can write this. And, and so that we can compete with this other magazine. And I tried. And I can't because I don't believe in the formula. I don't believe in the, in the virgin with big breasts and green eyes. Never seen one. Yeah, so you said you just couldn't get through <laughs> it without laughing at the, at the hero, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's probably to our benefit that you're not good at the regular romance <laughs> novel, right? We, we love your books. Uh, as they are, I want to talk about the Allende Foundation. Um, I was I was reading this is a spectacular story about how this came about. You were in India, understand? Yes. After my daughter died, I uh, wrote a book called Paula, and the income that came from that book, I put it aside in another account because I didn't want to touch it. It didn't belong to me. It belonged to Paula. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do with it until I went in a trip to India. And we, were, um, we had rented a car with a driver, and we were in Rajasthan in some rural area. And uh, the car, the engine got very hot, hot. so um, the driver stopped. And a friend of mine who was traveling with us and I went to a group of women that were standing by at, at a certain distance. And they were really very, very poor women and a bunch of little children, some of them naked. And we, we tried to communicate the way women communicate. We didn't have a, co- a common language, but we touched and, and, and we smiled, caressed the kids. And at one point we gave them a bunch of bracelets that we have bought in a market. And they were delighted with that. And so, so when we were leaving, one of the women gave me a, a little parcel of rags and I thought she wanted to give me something in exchange for the bracelets. And I said, no, 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 it's not necessary. I tried to give it back. And she wouldn't take it. And um, 
then I sort of opened the, the racks, and there was a newborn baby in there. I mean, it, I don't think it had a, it was a day old, really. The umbilical cord was still raw. And uh, I kissed the baby, blessed the baby, tried to give it back. She wouldn't take it. And in that moment, the driver came running, and, and he picked up the baby, gave it to the first woman who was closer, closer and, and pushed me into the car. And when he had already started the car, when I reacted and I said, why, why would that woman want to give me a baby? And he said, it's a girl. Who wants a girl? And that, that sort of made me realize the fate of that baby and that mother that was willing to get rid of the baby because she couldn't even feed her. And, and I couldn't do anything about it at that point. So I decided that the income of Paula and my future books would go to a foundation to help mothers like that mother and little girls like that little girl. Well, it's uh, uh, Isabel Allende Foundation if you want to, to help there. That's a great work you're doing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a, a TED Talk I, I watched. Um, you you uh, talked about aging and that mm-hmm. th- there were some some great benefits from aging. I wonder if you could t- tell me about, <laughs> about, that, about that. Look, I'm 80, and I married for the third time at 77. So let me tell you, Tom, you can really age in a very nice way. You, oh, oh, you are, it seems like. Well, look, I have, I'm, I have enough resources for the basic needs, and that's really important. Yeah. And I have good health, and I have love, not only the love of my husband, but I, have, I live in a, in a small community, let's say. I, I, I know all my neighbors by name. If I cook too much of something, I will give it to my neighbor who is 95 and she lives alone. So there is, there is a sense of, the, of belonging that, and of purpose. That is really important as you age. Mm-hmm. You uh, you divorced, I think, in your seventies, and married in your in your seventies. Uh, I think uh, some friends uh, said, "Well, why are you why are you divorcing in your seventies? I don't know what they said about your remarriage. How's how's that been?" <laughs> well, when I divorced, everybody said, "Why would you do that after twenty eight years with this man?" Well, because it takes a lot of courage to stay in a relationship that is not working. And it, le- it takes way less courage to live alone. So we, we divorced, very, very friendly and civilized divorce. And, um, and then I, I, st- I bought a very small house with one bedroom and moved in with my dog. And then eventually another husband landed on my lap. <laughs> I, is this true? I, I read that he heard you on the radio. On NPR, actually, he did, and and <laughs> how did it? it, it yeah. That takes he, a long he courage heard me to. He on the radio and started emailing my office morning and evening for five months. Wow! Every day, until finally I went to New York for a Planned Parenthood event, and I I thought, well, I should meet this guy, so I did, and we we just liked each other very much, and he three days later he proposed. He wanted to marry me. And I said, are you kidding? Why would I get married at this age? I'm not planning to have children. And, um, but he insisted, and he eventually sold his house, gave away everything he owned, and moved to California. So we've been living together ever since. 
Well, uh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. That's that's uh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I want to talk just briefly about uh, writing. You, you, I love this quote. You say half the job is to show up. So I'm... yes, <laughs> that's why I have January eighth yeah. as the day to start to show up. Show up. So on January eighth, you show up. You start writing. I and... show up no matter what. And then I'm sure there's difficulties along the way. I guess you keep going. Of course, there are difficulties, especially at the beginning when I don't know where I'm going. And uh, and I just have to, again, show up. And, if, you know, I, I have learned that I have enough experience to write about almost anything if I'm giving, given enough time to, to research and to just put the pieces together. Mm. And you've said your, your characters, uh, they appear to you. you. I guess you just you follow them. What do you do? When I start a book, if I am writing a historical novel, I have enough information, I have researched, so that I have like a platform or a stage where I will move the characters, but I don't know the story yet, and I don't know the characters. They will start appearing slowly as I need them. And some of the protagonists may just fade away, and some of the secondary characters may surprise me and become protagonists. That has happened many times. And what I have learned is to just relax and let it happen. Don't try to, to, to squeeze the story into a previous idea that I might have, a straight jacket in a way. If I let it flow, I make a lot of mistakes, and it takes a longer time because I don't have a script. But, the, but then the result is like a conversation, the way we talked. In, in, in the sense that I can connect with my reader in a more natural and organic way if I let the story ha- just just happen. Do you, uh, do you, I don't know if you uh, go back and encounter your books or maybe through the, through, you know, through the experiences of your readers and are, uh, maybe you're surprised by the things you didn't think were there when, when you were putting it together? Of course, that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the few times that I re- read a review, and I read very few, I, the, the reviewer usually finds in the text what I had no idea that was there. Uh, because the, the writing is it's a very, um, how can I say, organic process that happens more in the belly than in the mind. So when, when a story is analyzed and, and deconstructed and they find meaning in, in everything, I'm confused because I didn't know I had written something like that. I thought it was a much simpler thing. Um, but what, what I have found out in all these years is that readers, men and women, but mostly women, women young women, they, they find um, themselves in the stories. And they write to me and they say how I changed their lives, and they explain why. And I always say, I didn't do anything except put in words what was already in you. So you connected to the story because this is what you feel, what you think, who you are. Otherwise, there is no connection. So my job is just to to write it down, but it's always inside them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a wonderful connection to have. Yeah. Um, by the way, did you did you start a book uh, this past January eighth? Yes. 
I did. Uh, anything? But because I am doing the this book tour on Zoom and email and and phone, I'm doing it for several countries and several languages. I have been very busy, but I started it, and by March I should be able to just concentrate on the new book. Ah, very good. Anything you want to tell us or can tell us about no, that? No, I can't okay. talk about okay. something that is pr- in progress. Okay, I, I didn't think so. I just thought I'd try. No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Uh, finally, um, you, I, I was reading an interview. You said you're optimistic about the future. That 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 the case? Optimistic? Look, I have lived a long life, and I have seen the world get better, not worse. Uh, right now, things seem pretty bleak. (laughs) I remember the missile crisis. I remember the Cold War. I remember so many things that people forget. And uh, we have now more information, more education, more technology, less poverty. We are better than we were when I was born. I was born in the middle of the Second World War during the Holocaust and the atomic bombs, before the Declaration of Human Rights, before feminism. Yeah, so reason for optimism. That's wonderful. Well, we've reached the the end of our time uh, here. What a pleasure it's been speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Our thanks, of course, to Isabel Allende uh, for that conversation recorded that last week. Her latest book is called Violetta. And, of course, uh, she's author of uh, many, many books. Has uh, sold more than 20, uh, 75 million books uh, over the years. Uh, from House of the Spirits, uh, Daughter of Fortune, Island Beneath the Sea, Paola, Japanese Lover, Long Petal of the Sea, The Soul of Woman, and, as I mentioned, the latest book, Violetta. IsabelaAllende.com is her website, IsabelaAllende.com. And, again, our thanks to Isabel Allende for that uh, conversation. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will uh, fill out uh, part of the hour with going back to a conversation from 10 years or so ago, one of my favorite uh, conversations with uh, National Geographic explorer Helen Thayer. We'll have a part of that following this break. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. National Geographic explorer and best-selling author Helen Thayer has truly lived a life of adventure. She was born in New Zealand and uh, made at least part of her life in the United States. She once walked 4,000 miles across the Sahara from Morocco to the Nile River. She's kayaked to 2,200 miles of the Amazon River. She became the first woman to travel alone to any of the world's poles when she skied to the magnetic North Pole without a dog sled, snowbell resupply, or support. We spoke some 10 years or so ago, and since then, at age 80, she became the first person to walk the entire length of Death Valley, north uh, to south, alone. Uh, Here's just a portion of that conversation with Helen Thayer. Could you tell us a bit more about that solo uh, trip to the magnetic North Pole? I'm reading from uh, Lisa Schenker's article. She she covered your uh, uh, talk to the children in Salt Lake City. Uh, I'll just quote from her story. Helen Thayer faced three polar bears on the first day of her expedition to the magnetic North Pole. Nine of her fingers numbed from frostbite. A fierce Arctic storm swept away all of her food, save a small bag of walnuts. Well, it was a very tough journey, to say the least, because I was alone on foot down on the ice with the polar bears, um, living basically on their terms, not mine. Um, And no woman had... um, 
had made this journey before. No woman had even attempted to be to walk to this pole solo. And so I really had to call on my own outdoor experience. And it was uh, very difficult because of the pressure ridges, the polar bears, the weather, the broken ice. But um, I knew that if... And I had trained for two years for it, especially for this journey. And so I was well prepared and I had planned everything right down to the last detail. And so I felt so well prepared. I, I really knew that in spite of the difficulties, I could make it through. And I did. But there were some really scary moments along the way. Tell us about one or two of those. Well, uh, the first, of course, was when I left, took that first step. When I left base camp, took that first step. I knew that I had not yet met a polar bear in the wild. Now, as part of my planning, I had lived with the Inuit people for some time, the Masters of Arctic Survival. They know all there is to know about polar bears and so forth. But in spite of learning, listening, training, I knew I really had to stand up to that first bear and see if I could do it. Well, the first day there were no bears, I saw lots of tracks. And then, now, I must explain, too, that I was the only human, but I did have my polar bear dog. I bought a fella I called Charlie from the Inuit. His job was to keep the polar bears out of the village and keep the humans safe. So a perfect companion for me. And I named him Charlie, and off we went. And, of course, he loved those tracks. He put his big black nose down in them and tried to follow them. Well, there was no way I was going to follow a polar bear tracks. I would tell Charlie, I know what's on the other end. No way. And so, But it wasn't until the next day I was taking my tent down around 7 in the morning to start the next day's journey, and suddenly Charlie, who was tethered to my sled, began to growl. And I looked up, and there was my first bear. And she had two cubs at her side. And she was growling. She was very angry that I was there at all. This was not the Arctic Welcoming Committee at all. And I stood there trying to remember everything that I'd been taught. Keep passive eye contact. Don't turn your back, they told me. Don't take a single step backwards. And don't run, because I'd never win the race. Well, I was able to stand and remember what I'd been taught. And it worked. And, of course, Charlie was... um, He went into his defensive mode to defend me and leaping high in the air, snarling and growling. And so the whole thing was working. Charlie was doing his job, as I knew he should, and I was doing mine, as I had been taught. And then about 30 minutes, the the bear, she turned, took her two cubs away, disappeared into the rough ice. I never saw her again, but now I knew that although I can't tell you how scared I was, I mean, I, my heart was beating so so loudly and so fast, it's about leaped out of my chest. But in spite of that extreme fear, I was able to remember what I'd been taught. So now, of course, I knew I'd passed that final test, and I, now I knew that I could do it. And I knew how scary it was. And I was very afraid through this journey many times because I met seven bears um, individually up close and uh, up close and personal, way too personal sometimes. But now I knew I could do it. Uh, I was just going to surmise, and you've said it, you, you must have been frightened. You've, you've been taught, you have Charlie, but still, is it going to work? I'm sure that's going through your mind. Well, that's right. You don't know until the final test comes, and this is such extreme fear because I'm well aware that the last sound I could hear in my life would be the crunch of my own skull because that's how polar bears kill their victims and polar bears do hunt and kill humans sometimes so I knew I knew of the danger I, was, I wasn't out there just being totally oblivious and being some dummy oh I think I'll walk to the pole today and oh well the polar bears they're nice cuddly pets aren't they I knew different than that that's why I had to plan and train so completely 
I couldn't leave anything to chance. But now, having passed that final test, and, I, and describe the fear, I don't think there's any way that I can truly ever describe that to anyone. Uh, there's no words to describe the full extent of it. And if I hadn't taken control of myself and basically walked through that door of fear to the other side, I could have panicked and lost control, and of course that would have done me in. And a dog like Charlie is, you know, there's a huge difference in size, but a a dog like Charlie really can be effective against a polar bear? Oh, definitely. These dogs, they choose themselves, basically. The dogs are fed seal meat, frozen seal meat, and the polar bears, of course, this is their food, and they can't, they smell it from a great distance. They come in and try to take it away from the dogs sometimes, and there's a lot of trouble, a lot of fighting. Some dogs just don't survive. Others do survive. But Charlie, when he would race to a polar bear, he would approach head on until the last minute. He would whip his body around to the side and suddenly be at the back of the bear and grab his heel and hang on. And if you can just imagine some a very powerful 100-pound animal determined to defend his owner there uh, and hanging on to that Achilles tendon back there, you can imagine how that bear must feel. What were some of the other barriers uh, that you uh, experienced in, in that trip? Well, um, at one stage, I was um, engulfed in an enormous storm. The first time I was engulfed in a storm, winds, according to my wind meter, were around 70 miles an hour, and then... The ice began to break up all around my tent. And, of course, my worry at that point was, would the ice break beneath my tent and drop Charlie and I and my tent into the ocean? And being alone, and in those days, remember this was in 1988, I didn't have a floatable sled or an immersion suit or, or any of the wonderful things that I could have now that simply didn't exist at that time. And so if I'd gone into the water, it would have been very difficult to survive. And I had to sit a day and a half in that tent, hoping that that ice would stay intact beneath my tent floor. And the ice was breaking up. I was actually in the midst of a major ice breakup. And you can be ground into little pieces just like the ice. But the ice underneath my tent held fast. And a day and a half later, the winds went down. I was able to step out of my tent. And all around me, the ice was just a mess. Lots of open water. So then I had to take my ski pole, push the little pieces of ice together to make these bridges from one ice pan to another and very carefully pull my sled across and then carefully pull Charlie's sled across, make another bridge, push the ice together, pile more on top to make it strong enough and then pull my sled again. And I did this for half a day because I knew if I could go about five miles north, then I would be on thicker ice according to my charts and so forth. That's a portion of a conversation from 10 years ago or so with National Geographic explorer Helen Thayer. You can find her at HelenThayer.com. Uh, she's the author of several books, including Polar Dream, Three Among Wolves, Walking the Gobi, and Charlie, the Hero by My Side. On her website, she lists future goals. Uh, she'll continue to explore the remote corners of the world, create educational material for students kindergarten to grade 12 based on her adventures. She was referring there to classroom materials, and you can find those at adventureclassroom.org. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today.
It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here. We're excited for the big moment of NASA's Artemis 1 mission. It's set to launch at 6.33 Mountain Time with a launch window of two hours, depending on weather or last-minute calibrations. That's not unusual at all. This is the first mission of NASA's Artemis program of lunar exploration. We can watch it on NASA TV when the time comes, so get up a little bit early. The debut of NASA's Space Launch System, or we used to call them rockets, sending an uncrewed Orion capsule to lunar orbit. Orion will spend six weeks in space, finally returning to Earth in an ocean splashdown October 10th. Sensors inside Orion will gather data on the deep space radiation environment and other aspects of the flight. And not long after liftoff, 10 tiny CubeSats will deploy from an adapter connecting Orion to the rocket's upper stage. These little spacecraft will perform a variety of work, from hunting for water on the moon to traveling to a near-Earth asteroid using a solar sail. Wow, I want to find out about that. But the main goal of Artemis 1 is a test flight of the rocket and Orion that are ready to launch and carry astronauts if the Artemis 1 mission goes well. NASA aims to launch Artemis 2, a crewed mission to lunar orbit in 2024. Artemis 3 will put the astronauts down to the moon's south pole. They're going to land there in 2025 or 2026. It'll be the first crewed lunar landing since Apollo 17 moon mission in 1972. That's 50 years. And in deep space exploration, let's take the little Skywatcher spaceship out to join the Voyagers. It might take a minute to get there. NASA's Voyager probes to interstellar space. They're champions of cosmic exploration. It's the 45th anniversary of the Voyager missions to the outer planets and now into interstellar space. They've traveled farther than any other spacecraft and are still going. They'll probably reach the Oort cloud in about 300 years, transmitting on a power pack the size of a refrigerator motor and a gold disc of the rhythm of blues and music of the Earth from all countries and a map of where we are, just in case they make first contact. NASA and JPL launched Voyager 2 on August 20, 1977, and Voyager 1 mission followed a few weeks later on September 5th. They sailed out, took a tour of the outer planets, including Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and finally out to Pluto. You can see some stunning photos. They've been there, they're still around, and they're on the Skywatcher Leo T site. These two spacecraft also captured stunning close-ups of some of the other stuff out there, and Voyager 1 took the picture of the famous pale blue dot image of Earth as seen from a distance of 3.7 billion miles from the sun. And as we look up and look around, we can look at where Voyager went and is going. For months, most of the naked eye planets have been hanging around in very fun configurations up in the morning sky, out in the early. Now Saturn comes up in the southeast as twilight fades. Next in the parade is larger Jupiter. Late these nights, Saturn and Jupiter are at their very biggest. Vega passes the zenith, or the top of the sky, and the Milky Way displays itself in moonless dark. Once you find Saturn, which is easy with your own two eyes, you, you can't miss it if you're looking over there. Yeah, and it helps if you're in the dark, somewhere like Moon Lake or above the floodwaters of Moab. Lots of good luck to you people in Moab, by the way. From the red rock and juniper, you can look for the Sagittarius teapot. It's at its highest on the meridian, due south, right after nightfall is complete. It's tilting to port of the right. See the chart on the Skywatcher site. On dark nights, the Sagittarius star cloud seems to emerge like steam from the spout of the Sagittarius teapot. And in the steam, or stream I like to call it, above these and slightly to the left is the center of the galaxy. Just try and grasp the idea. I'm, I'm still trying. Above this is the Lagoon Nebula and the small Sagittarius cloud and the Swan Nebula. For your pleasure. Uh, this from Star Lab, Inuit Star Lore Cylinder and Ole Knudsen. It's many cultures, one sky. Let's take a trip around the globe and northeast to the mysterious giant Greenland, where it is a challenge to survive, but Inuit have done it for a long time. To this culture, the Milky Way is known as Avaguti. 
Some call it a divider, avaguti, either just dividing the sky or acting as a separation between the winds, so that if an easterly wind prevails, the Milky Way is blown a bit toward the west. The idea may have come from the fact that in most parts of the Arctic, the Milky Way is sometimes difficult to see because of the, the spectacular aurora, moonlight, or a haze of ice crystals in the air. At various times of the night, the Milky Way band of light spans the sky in different directions because of the location, and thus one can easily imagine that this has to do with changing wind directions. Also in Greenland, the Milky Way is interpreted in a slightly different way, a pragmatic way, by Quilapsilia. They see it as the middle line on the belly of an animal where it is cut up. Some North American Inuit use the terms the river or the snowshoe tracks of the raven, and this may be influenced by the sky lore of Native American further south. So enjoy the mystery and look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR. Translator station statewide and streaming live at upr.org.